0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 1st, 2023. Confession, my favorite form of reading when I have the opportunity to actually read books rather than talk about them are biographies. In fact, if you break into Uh, my United Airlines uh, website. You can impersonate me by knowing that I'm a a reader of biographies, and I'm always amazed by biographers for their commitment, their stamina, their passion. I wish I could do it. I don't have the time, I think, or the discipline. We're thrilled today to have one of America's leading political, historical, military biographers, Ronald C. White, on the show. Many of you will be familiar uh, with White's great biography of Abraham Lincoln, A. Lincoln, and others of you will be familiar with his book, American Ulysses, A Life of Ulysses S. Grant. Neither of these men need much of an introduction. In fact, uh, as, uh, as the website suggests, Ulysses S. Grant was routinely grouped with George Washington and Abraham Lincoln in the Trinity of Great American Leaders, So one might guess that as a follow up to his work on Lincoln and Grant, uh, Ronald White would write a biography of (laughs) George Washington. But of course, he's too smart for that or too (laughs) original. And he's passed on George Washington. And instead, and, and intriguingly, in my view, at least, he's chosen someone who most of us will not be as familiar with. In fact, many of us won't even know anything about him. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. He has a new book out on Great Fields, The Life and Unlikely Heroism of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Uh, Ronald White is joining us from Philadelphia today, where he's on book tour. The book is just out. Ron, I've got to ask you up front, before we even get to Chamberlain, how do you decide on your subject? It's such a huge commitment. I know this last book took you six years. Do you take six years to decide what you're going to study?
1: Well, this particular one uh, was done as often it is when you're speaking, people will say, and what is your next book? And I was speaking at the Jonathan Club in Los Angeles, and I said responsibly, I'm not sure, does anybody have any ideas? And a fellow in the back by who I learned was named Mark Lippus stood up and literally shouted, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. So I didn't know too much about him at that time, but I investigated I talked with my editor. I talked with my publisher. We looked at the fact that there really had never been for many, many, many years a wide-angle, what I call a wide-angle biography. The focus had been on Chamberlain and Gettysburg. I think the story is much larger and much more complex and interesting.
0: And was it quite a sharp intellectual shift to go from, from, from men like Ulysses Grant and Abraham Lincoln, who were so well-known, to somebody who, as you suggested, hasn't had the attention perhaps that he deserves?
1: Well, I've been surprised uh, on the one hand uh, of how many people do know Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. That's really because of the, what I call the trifecta of the Pulitzer Prize winning historical novel, Killer Angels. Ken Burns featured Chamberlain in his Civil War documentary, and Jeff Daniels portrayed him in the movie Gettysburg. So there's millions that do know him, but you're correct. I've spoken already to a couple of audiences in which I knew that people said, I don't know who this man is. So my challenge is to present him to people who don't know who he is. So let's
0: assume ignorance. I have to admit, I'm rather (laughs) ignorant about Chamberlain. Let's assume, as I said, that most of our audience doesn't know who this man was. Could you give us an introduction?
1: Yes. He came to fame on the second day at Gettysburg. He was given the command to defend the far left line of the entire Union Army on the top of a squatty hill called Little Round Top. He was the lieutenant in charge of the 20th Maine Volunteer Regiment. Uh, At that point, he was outnumbered at least two to one by Alabama and Texas regiments coming up the hill. His men had literally run out of ammunition, and so he said, bayonet, and in a remarkable charge, they came down the hill and routed the Confederates, and that day changed his life, his reputation forever. So I argue that that's kind of a zoom lens. We know that particular focus on Chamberlain. I wanted to tell the larger focus. I think he had more different vocations after the Civil War than any other Civil War veteran.
0: We are speaking with uh, Ronald uh, White, who is one of America's leading, Ronald C. White, one of America's leading biographers. Uh, he has a new book out on great fields about a man that many of us will probably be less familiar with, certainly, than Lincoln, uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Are you suggesting, Ron, then, that in an odd way, Gettysburg was the beginning rather than the end of his career? Mostly, figures in, in war who have accomplished something remarkable in battle. That's always the last chapter in their book. But are you suggesting that this is the beginning and that actually in some ways his life eclipsed what he did at Gettysburg?
1: I am. It's fascinating right as we speak, Gettysburg is going through a two-year renovation of Little Round Top. Why? Because it's the most visited place there. So people know that story. But Gettysburg contacted me about seven, eight months ago and said, We all know about Gettysburg, and that's what our fans want to see and hear. Can you tell us the larger story? And the larger story is a person who becomes governor of Maine four times, president of Bowdoin College, probably the best public speaker after the Civil War because he was professor of rhetoric at Bowdoin College and then an incredible writer. And so that's the story I want to tell, the larger story. And it's complex. It's filled with contradictions. That's what makes it interesting. And
0: that's, of course, what makes him such a great man. If they're not complex and full of contradictions, they're not great. Tell us the life of, of, of I was going to say Ronald White, the, the life of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain before de Gettysburg. How did he end up uh, on the uh, on the battlefield?
1: He grew up in the tiny town of Brewer, Maine, Uh, He went to Bowdoin College. It was five days horseback ride from Maine to Harvard. So at the beginning of the 19th century, Mainers founded their own college, a very fine college. It was a college steeped as many were in those days in a classical education, uh, the the, the lessons of Greece and Rome. He early on became drawn to languages. By the time he graduated from Bowdoin, he had learned seven languages. Mm. But he came to Bowdoin with a great personal problem, and that was he was a stutterer or a stammerer. And in an oral culture where the basic method of learning was recitation, this caused him incredible personal pain. But through the good offices of a professor, he was able to overcome that. And then again, one of the paradoxes of his life, later on he would become professor of oratory and rhetoric at Bowdoin. He became a great public speaker. So he was serving at Bowdoin when the war broke out in April of 1861. He watched his students, there were no electives, so he had taught all the students, enlist in the the Union Army. Some were captured, several were killed. Finally, in 1862, when Lincoln offered a proclamation that we need 300,000 more men, he decided to enlist. It was his, what he called his duty. Duty was one of those great classical virtues that he had learned as a student.
0: What was his socioeconomic background? Was he from a a privileged, powerful family or was he from a a more ordinary family?
1: Kind of an ordinary family. His father was a a farmer uh, and and also did a little bit of lumbering. Uh, A very religious family, the Congregational Church, which was the dominant church of Maine, were really the kind of 19th century successors to the Puritans. So he was steeped in the Bible and, and Christian values, and he kind of combined that with the classical education he learned at Bowdoin College.
0: You, uh, Ron, you're, you're involved with um, the Trinity Forum. Um, you're a fellow there with Pete Wayners, another old friend of the show. Man, I have a great deal of respect, moral and intellectual, and otherwise one of the great Americans, in my view. Yes. We're attracted to uh, Chamberlain, in in part because of his religious background?
1: Yes, in all three of my biographies, uh, Lincoln, Grant, and now Chamberlain, I found a fascinating, what I call a faith story, which I think has often been overlooked in a lot of our modern biographies. Oh, well, that was what people were in the 19th century, and we haven't taken the time to explore, well, what is it that they were in the 19th century? So for Lincoln, it became a story within the orbit of the Presbyterian Church. For Grant, it was within the Methodist Church. For Chamberlain, it was the Congregational Church, but yet that church was being challenged by Unitarianism, which had really begun in Boston and Massachusetts and was now later on coming into Maine. But his faith was very, very central to him. And yet, as he moved forward in his adult life, he became more and more open to other versions, other traditions of faith which i think again expresses who he is as an expanding person in his leadership. And what were the i
0: don't know if this is the right word ideological certainly the the sectarian elements in his religion what distinguishes what distinguished his religion from perhaps more mainstream or other rival uh, forms of christianity
1: well the kind of rivals coming into maine were the baptists and the methodists which were what i would call very much experiential religions and they were winning their way because they were religions of the heart the congregationalists and the presbyterians were really religion of the mind so they wanted their clergy for example to be college graduates and to be seminary trained and so he was really caught up in intellectual curiosity he was a he, he he the mind was what fascinated him. And uh, he was a tremendously wide-ranging reader. His ability to read in all these different languages, seven languages by the time he graduated from Bowdoin, made him really open to multiple understandings of culture from different nations and different cultures.
0: What were those seven languages? I assume a couple of them were. Greek and, and Greek.
1: Greek and Latin were required to enter the college. So the was he very they...
0: first in antiquity? Was he
1: Very much so. You, I, I tell you, I'd like to share this with an entering college student today. You, you had to know Greek and Latin poets and writers. You had to be able to quote them from memory. He had to be able to quote the New Testament from its original Greek. But the languages he learned were in this order, French, German, <laughs> Spanish, Italian, and then Hebrew. And then when he went on after graduation to Bangor Theological Seminary, he learned Syriac and Arabic. And in the last years of his life, he traveled to Egypt, and he wrote back a, a letter letters regularly to a newspaper. And he said, well, I'm spending one hour reading the, the Bible at night, and I'm reading one hour reading the Koran at night. He could read the Koran in original Arabic. Just an amazing person. It sounds,
0: in the way you present it, as if this is high church, uh, perhaps as, as close to traditional Catholicism as you could get without being a Catholic, or is that wrong?
1: Well, I, I, in, in some ways it's high church, but but the liturgy wouldn't really be Catholic. It wouldn't really even be Episcopal. There was a tremendous emphasis in the congregational and Presbyterian churches on preaching. And although he never became a preacher, he graduated from seminary, had invitations to serve two churches. He then, at the, almost the next day, was asked to give a Master of Arts oration at Bowdoin College commencement. It was so outstanding, they offered him a teaching appointment, and because he did not become an ordained minister, that part of his story, the the three years at Bangor Theological Seminary, in previous biographies was given sentences. I thought, my goodness, three years, it needs much more. The problem was the seminary went out of business in 2013, but I was able to find its records at the Maine Historical Society in Portland. And I tried to reconstruct what it must have been to be a seminary student for three years, even as I'd already constructed what it meant to be a college student for four years at Bowdoin.
0: Ron, you don't need me to tell you that the causes and nature of the American Civil War are controversial and complicated, but many people think of it as a war over slavery. Was uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, was he particularly offended by the institution of slavery? Was this the thing that, in some ways at least, you talked about duty, drove him to sign up, or or did he simply sign up as an American?
1: He signed up to defend the Union, and it's very hard for us today to understand the incredible power of the concept of the Union. It wasn't simply a political concept. It was kind of a religious concept. And so actually living in far off Northern Maine, the issue of slavery was not important for him. Of course, Lincoln began to defend the union and only in the middle of the war did slavery become part of the goal, a new birth of freedom. So Chamberlain was accepting of that. He would ultimately accept for sure the 13th, 14th, and 15th, the so-called reconstruction amendments, but he basically signed up to defend the union that was his major motivation.
0: I'm sensing, perhaps, Ron, that you're sidestepping this question a little bit. Was he, as a Christian, offended by slavery? What was his opinion of, uh, of African-Americans?
1: He was offended by slavery, but it's also, I think, how much you encounter slavery. It's interesting in my biography of Ulysses S. Grant, for example, <clears throat> the further south that Grant went in his leadership of the Union Army, the more he encountered African-Americans, enslaved people, who were coming into the Union camps. And so this really had an effect upon Grant, this encounter with enslaved people. Chamberlain really didn't have very much encounter with the slave people. So yes, he was offended, but this again was not the major motivation for him joining the Union Army.
0: We are speaking with um, Mm -hmm. Ronald C. White, the author of On Great Fields, a major new biography from one of America's great biographers uh, on Joshua uh, uh, Lawrence Chamberlain. I want to thank our liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics for supporting the show. We're going to run a short uh, video about liberties and then we'll be back to talk with ronald white about gettysburg and post gettysburg in the life of Mm -hmm. joshua lawrence chamberlain so don't go away anyone we're back in about 33 and a half seconds
1: beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion substance Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller.
0: And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Ronald C. White, the author of On Great Fields, a major new biography of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. So he signs up. Ron, and then what? He, he doesn't immediately go to Gettysburg. He has uh, there. Are, there are battles, there are engagements beforehand.
1: He does, and when he signs up, the governor of Maine wanted to make him a colonel. What governors did that often was called political generals. They wanted to have outstanding persons who then would have the ability to recruit, in this sense, a thousand-man regiment. But Chamberlain said, I'm sure to the surprise of the governor, no, I don't deserve that. I don't have any military training. So I would like to learn and earn my way. Please appoint me as a lieutenant colonel. And I hope to earn my way to becoming a colonel. So that's the way he began. And his men had various, mostly skirmishes. They were held in reserve at Antietam. They hadn't faced any real major battle until Gettysburg. And it here we have this. 62 Gettysburg was ten months later. So here we have this man,
0: deeply versed in antiquity, um, knowledge of seven or eight languages, very dedicated Christian. Where did he find his warlike spirit? I can understand his commitment to service, but in a way, he might have been the he might have been the the, the religious man at the front cheering the, the the troops on where, where where was the violence in this man where did he discover it
1: that's a great question and comment i in my titling it the unlikely hero he was a professor he was an amiable a soft-spoken good humored person a bookworm really as a student and so that's part of the interesting paradox how could he suddenly become this uh almost at times reckless, kind of daredevil, courageous leader. And uh, I don't know that he fully ever understood it himself. It often surprised his comrades. But everyone spoke of his remarkable courage, willing to allow himself to be injured or killed if that was the cost of what it meant to serve in the Civil War. That's what makes him, again, so interesting. It's not what you would expect. Perhaps in a sense, war... Liberated
0: him. It, oh, that's a good way to say it. Yeah, revered, I like that. that
1: yeah. He didn't know he had, or nobody knew he had. That's a great way to say it. I'm going to bother, borrow your phrase.
0: Oh, you can have it. it. You inspired <laughs> it. Because unlike so many generals, he wasn't. He didn't go to military school. He didn't go to West Point. He no. wasn't trained in violence.
1: No. And and in studying those who did go to West Point, often the like William Rosecrans, for example, the most popular man most ready to succeed. They often didn't succeed. So because you went to West Point did not mean you were going to be a successful soldier or general.
0: I was actually at Gettysburg uh, this summer. There was a, a Braver Angels conference. Oh, I like the
1: Braver Angels very much.
0: And uh, you, you should you should speak. You would have been a great speaker, actually. And we, of course, did the, the tour of all the battlefields. Um, it's an astonishingly bloody story even when you just tour these battlefields you know 150 years later and one of the things that I learn I am not a his, much of a historian of night of the Civil War is how many problems Lincoln was having with his generals so yes. I guess for Lincoln Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was a dream come true it finally a, an individual brave responsible dependable is that fair
1: that's true, and yet uh, because of what you just described, those qualities, uh, in in the middle of the war, Lincoln, uh, Chamberlain was pr- uh, proposed to become a general, and the ultimate decision would be Lincoln, and, and he did not accept Chamberlain as a general. We We sort of think it wasn't Lincoln that made that decision. It was his secretary of war, Stanton, and he might have had some kind of argument with some of the generals, but He didn't didn't become a general right there when most of his comrades thought he should.
0: And some of the generals, certainly on the Union side, were, to be polite, pretty incompetent, weren't they?
1: Well, and there was really a caste system between the West Pointers, the, uh, the regular army, and the volunteers. And he was a volunteer, and the volunteers were often not accepted in the same way that the regular army was. They... They almost looked down upon some of them. They couldn't possibly be as good as those who were trained at West Point.
0: You mentioned uh, Chamberlain's appearance in a number of popular films and books, uh, Michael Shara's The Killer Angels, the Burns uh, Civil War uh, movie, and of course, Gettysburg itself. <coughs> He's a a brave man, a heroic man, but how critical was he in terms of Gettysburg in, itself in a strategic... It, it seems for me as, again, not a military historian, as if much of the battle was chaotic. There was no logic to it.
1: It was chaotic, and and those who would wish to take him down a peg would say that there were many other uh, battles, many other leaders who also deserve kind of acclamation, and that in a sense, we could say that popular culture has brought Chamberlain back to light. Not that he isn't and wasn't a, a terrific military leader. There are West Point professors, when I went to West Point for the raising of the grand statue, they told me they would bring their students to Gettysburg for what they call three day rides, and they would portray Little Roundtop Top and, and really learn from Chamberlain's leadership. So even today, West Point professors would say, no, Chamberlain's leadership is still a textbook form of leadership that we wish to teach our own students. Just
0: remind us, Ron, because not everyone's going to be familiar with this, of of what Little Round Top was and and, and what Chamberlain's involvement in it was and and how it determined Gettysburg.
1: Well, Little Round Top is actually a rather small hill by what we think of today's uh, measurements. It was flanked by what was called Big Round Top, but it was located at a very strategic point uh, on the Gettysburg battlefield. And General Gouverneur Warren had looked up with his field glasses a few hours before and seen that it was completely unoccupied. And he recognized that if the Confederates were to occupy Little Round Top, they would then have a terrific advantage over the Union Army. And so... uh, He quickly wanted to have the Union Army occupy it. This would defend what I said is the far left line of the Union Army. And by doing so, that became critical in the overall success of the Union Army.
0: Were the Confederates particularly impressed with with him?
1: They were. This becomes an interesting story. Uh, 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 Two years later, he is asked to lead the surrender at Appomattox. And uh, the person who is surrendering is John B. Gordon, who had risen within the Confederate Army, again, with no military training, to be almost the best person that Lee thought of as a, as a Confederate general. And uh, 30 years later, uh, Gordon, who had become a folk hero in the South, is giving a lecture in Brooklyn, New York. And he asked several Union generals to sit on the stage. And when he completes the story of Appomattox, where his bedraggled men came forward and Chamberlain in the spirit of the, uh, of the peace that Grant had offered to Lee saluted the Confederate soldiers. And at that moment, 30 years later, Gordon said, and this is the man who offered this magnanimous gesture to the courage of the South. Now this is part of the controversy of Chamberlain. He never ever uh, approved the cause of the Confederacy But he did approve the courage of the soldiers. That was what sort of set him apart in his post-Civil War lectures.
0: And what about the whole issue of of Reconstruction? It's, again, enormously controversial. Um, America didn't really reconstruct. In some ways, some people still believe that Civil War is going on. Did he have strong feelings about how the South should be, so to speak, punished and reorganized?
1: Well, I tell the story that there were three great main heroes in the Civil War. Oliver Otis Howard, we think of him as Howard University in Washington, D.C. He was head of the Freedmen's Bureau. Adelbert Ames, the person who was the colonel of the 20th Maine Regiment, who after the war became the governor of Mississippi. Well, those two men were right in the center of the, of the civil rights struggles And they both came out strongly for the rights of African-Americans. Remember, Chamberlain is in in Maine. He's the governor of Maine. He's the president of a college in Maine. He did not have that same encounter with African-Americans. So you don't hear him speaking about that side of Reconstruction. In fact, in his inaugural address as governor, he said, our Reconstruction will be political and economic. And so he did not have the same encounter with African-Americans that others did. Ron, is that
0: convincing? I mean, I take your point that he grew up in Maine, but he fought in this battle. There were African American soldiers on the Union side. Mm-hmm. He saw freed slaves. Is it is that completely convincing? Is there something else going on here?
1: I don't know what else is going on, but and we can fault him for this for sure. But he never never got involved in the same way. But I do. Suggest that he never had the same experiences of either howard or ames or or others and lincoln well lincoln again he he was as he traveled Controversial too, right? as he traveled from washington to what's now called the, the president lincoln's cottage he, he ran into c- camps for uh, enslaved people who were there outside of washington he, he, he and even as a young person, he had traveled to New Orleans and was absolutely aghast to see on one side were men, on the other side were women. Marriage was not, could never take place within slavery. He was horrified by this. So, again, he had a different kind of experience than Chamberlain did.
0: So, let's talk about the rest of his life. As, as you suggested, it was in some ways more remarkable than even his remarkable exploits at Gettysburg. He became governor of maine um how how did all this transform him did he come back feeling like a hero looking like a hero
1: well you know i i what dawned on me is that i think so many persons whether it's civil war or whether it's world war ii this is the high point of their lives they might be 25 or 30 or 35 Mm. years of age And in many ways, nothing ever else measures up to that particular moment of adrenaline where they fought alongside their friends and achieved hopefully some remarkable victories. But when he came back, the Republicans of Maine recognized that here they had a military hero, and so they quickly nominated him to be governor. Uh, The governorship of Maine was only for a one-year term, and I determined in looking at all the previous governors, the average governor served one and a half years. But Chamberlain won a first term, a second term, a third term, and a fourth term. Only two persons had ever served four years. He did, and he did in part because he was this renowned post-Civil War hero, Maine adored. No, no aspirations to hire office? Well, that's an interesting question, too. While he was serving in Maine, there was one occasion where there was a death and it uh, People thought, well, maybe he would appoint himself or maybe appoint kind of a lame duck and then he would become. No, he he never wanted to go that route. So he appointed a man by the name of Morrill. We know him for the Morrill Land Act that created universities. So he may have had that higher aspiration, but he never served beyond Maine in a a national office in in the House or the Senate in Washington, D.C.
0: I mean an interesting wife and an interesting marriage. Fanny Adam Chamberlain, tell me a little bit about her. What's interesting. He did. You
1: know, when I do a biography, I'm always looking to kind of find the, how, to, how to characterize a particular person. if I may, when he met Fanny as a young girl, a young woman this is to me, just says volumes about who she was. She attended Brunswick High School and in her senior year, she was asked to write an assignment by her teacher, Mr. Alfred Pike. He wanted the students to compose a paper using verbs ending in FY. So knowing that her teacher did not entirely approve of her humor, this is what she wrote. This is to certify, notify, exemplify, testify, and signify my obedient disposition. And I hope that it will gratify, satisfy, beautify, and edify my teacher, and pacify, modify, and nullify his feelings of dissatisfaction toward me. Please do not exclaim, "Oh fie!" when reading this paper.
0: So she was quite a. She,
1: she a was spirit. smart, and she knew it, and she had a quick now, wit. So what was
0: troubled about the marriage?
1: Well, it started off in a wonderful way she was a little concerned because she was three years older than he that was unusual in that day but then he went off to war then he went off to be the governor in augusta maine they somehow fell into some sort of difficulty the correspondence is not there to tell us exactly what it was people in the 19th century often burned their correspondence husbands and wives did so other people would never read it in the future At one point, uh, she may have even been contemplating divorce. But I believe, as I watched the full scope of their lives together, that somehow they repaired their marriage. And in their later older years, it was a very wonderful marriage. But it went through its trials, which we don't fully understand. Did they have children? Did they have children? They had two beautiful children uh, a daughter first, and then a son. And the daughter was a real, she was a real pip. She would write to her father and call him Darling Bill, my Darling Bill. She was like only 13 or 14 years of age, but she just loved kind of teasing her father. And he had a great relationship with Grace. The son was named Willis, Willies, and he graduated from Bowdoin College, as did his father.
0: It's hard to separate this man from the Civil War. So let's end with that, not about the war itself, but the so-called Second Civil War, the, lit- yes. the the literary battles after the war. Yeah. Tell us about them and tell us about his involvement uh, on one side or the other in these battles.
1: Well, what I call the Second Civil War is simply to say that as the men came home, they initially talked about their exploits, but then they began to argue, no, it didn't happen that way. This is the way it happened. No, he didn't get the credit. Oh, he should have. And so the Second Civil War took place in newspapers, regiment histories, even in sort of redoing some court martial[s] of men who had been taken away from their command in the Civil War but just dis- required justice. But the most remarkable story is that in 1879, in a disputed election, uh, there were three candidates, Republican, Democratic, and Greenback. That was a party that came into view in the 19- 1870s. And the Republicans won, they thought, the governorship. They won the House of Representatives. This is the state of Maine. And they won the Senate. But then something that seems almost eerily like January 2021, the great countout began. And the Secretary of State began to discredit this ballot and that ballot. It was signed with your initial, not with your name. It was in one column, not two. It was not signed in an open public meeting. And before they knew it, the Republicans were now the underdog and the Democrats were in the lead. And with an election, with a a mandate coming up to have a new governor on January 7, violence erupted in the state and men began to march to Augusta to challenge the election on all sides. And remarkably, the governor, who was a Democrat, called upon Chamberlain, a Republican, to come to Augusta to restore order. And when he did, he was attacked by people on all sides. There was even talk of kidnapping him On a fateful day, as men rushed the Capitol, it sounded so much like the insurrection of January 6th, Chamberlain stepped out on the rotunda, which was surrounded by battle flags, and this is what he said. "'Men, you wish to kill me. "'I hear killing is no new thing to me. "'I've offered myself to be killed many times, "'when I no more deserved it than now. "'Some of you, I think, have been with me in those days.' You understand what you want, do you? I'm here to preserve the peace and honor of the state until the right government is seated. Whichever it may be, it's not for me to say, but it is for me to see that the laws of the state are put into effect without fraud, without force, but with calm thought and sincere purpose. I am here for that and I shall do it. If anybody wants to kill me for it, here I am. Let him kill, and with that, almost like a cowboy in a western movie, he opened his chest. He opened his sport coat there wide and said, "If you want to kill me, you can." Someone in the crowd cried out, "By God, old General! The first man that dares a lay to lay a hand on you, I'll kill him on the spot!" And the crowd drifted away.
0: And yeah, it reminds me a little bit of High Noon. High Noon. Uh, and finally, uh, in the in the 19th century, certainly right. there were braver angels, even in the 19th yeah. century. So, so finally, uh, I I got to ask you. I know it's a little bit of a dumb question, but still, I'm going to end on with a silly question, Ron. Uh, in the in the Pantheon of great Americans, I mean Lincoln right. and Ulysses Grant, and of course Washington are there. Where where should we place Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain?
1: Well, that's a great question that I've not been asked before. Obviously, there's a different pantheon, is there not, of American presidents, so he doesn't stand within those. But I argue at the end of my book that this is not simply a Civil War story or even a 19th century story. Even as I've told this story of what's called the 12 days of January 1880, I think he is a remarkable hero in an age when we're very suspicious of heroes. And I think it's all fitting that we have come to know him better. And my hope is that by writing this biography, we will know him as a very important American that we need to know more of.